The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In like so far. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, putting theories for why humans are so helpful to the test. And how to make DVDs with huge storage capacity. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show, reporter Adam Levy is helping us to understand the evolutionary origins of altruism. Well, before I do that, Nick, can you do me a quick favour and remind me what's coming up later in the show? Oh, um, sure, yes. Later on, I've been looking into a way to make disks with huge data storage capacity. Now, Nick, why did you help me out there? Well, it's, you know, it's in the script. Well, yeah, but I mean, even if it wasn't in the script, you would have helped out, right? Uh, sure, I guess. Well, why? I don't know. It's just what people do, right? Exactly. It's just what people do. But why? You mean, why do people help each other out? Yeah. How did this behaviour evolve? Which is the topic of a study out in this week's Nature. So thank you, Nick, for your help with that intro. No worries, you're welcome. You see, helping each other out is a part of our human nature. Whether that's helping with childcare, sharing information, exchanging goods and food... And we help individuals that we know. We help also individuals who we don't know. That's evolutionary anthropologist Sarah Matthew of Arizona State University. So why did we evolve to help each other out? After all, in many situations, it would seem to be in our interests to not cooperate, to accept someone's help, but then not help them out in return. Cooperators somehow had to avoid getting exploited by individuals who just take their help but are not going to do their share. And and that problem is so powerful that we get very, very little cooperation evolving in nature. So how did humans evolve cooperation? When compared to other animals, we're remarkably cooperative with each other. So much so that we often help someone out even when we're unlikely to ever interact with them again, and so won't get to reap any benefits. People donate blood. We will get up from our seat when somebody enters a bus who looks like they need a seat. So how did our weird way of helping each other out come about? Well, there are two main explanations. 
is economist Ernst Fair of the University of Zurich explaining the first of these theories, the theory of repeated interactions, which argues because we evolved always under the shadow of the future, where there is another future interactions, we have an incentive to cooperate. So help someone now, so they might help you later. And this theory explains our tendency to help people we won't see again by suggesting that our altruism evolved when our ancestors lived in small groups and knew everyone, and so helped everyone. The other theory, called group competition, imagines that it was the groups of people themselves that could have led to cooperation arising as a human norm. And the key idea in the theory of group competition is that the groups who are more likely to succeed in group competition are more cooperative groups. So groups in which everyone is nice to each other would be able to outcompete groups where people acted more meanly. Okay, so two theories to explain human helpfulness, and Ernst and his collaborators set out to see which of these holds up. Well, we set up a very large simulation project, and that cooperation game has a very simple structure. The cooperation game that the team modelled imagines two players. Say they're you and Ernst. To start off with, Ernst is given ten dollars, and I can keep my ten dollars, or I can send any of my ten dollars to you. And a bonus: the money Ernst sends to you gets doubled on its way to you. Now you can return the favor, sending all, none, or some of your money to Ernst. So we have this sequential game, if you like. You observe what I sent, and then you can respond by also sending your amount. And again, any of the money you gift to Ernst would be doubled. This game sounds very simple, but the model allows for surprisingly complex behavior and tactics to arise. Here's Sarah again, who didn't work on the study. Now there have been hundreds and thousands of models done before. They usually conceive of strategies based on binary kinds of behaviors. So either you give or you don't give. Here in this study, they modeled cooperation and non-cooperation as a continuous trait, which is more realistic because you could potentially give back a little less than you were given. You could give back a little more than you were given, so that is, in some ways, the really special thing that this model accomplished. So, what does this model find? Well, for repeated interactions, this idea that we help someone so they'll help us. The person who responds to the partner's previous cooperation level always has an incentive to cooperate a little bit less than what the partner did. And over time, the little bit less accumulates and leads to the breakdown of cooperation. So, in contrast to what most people in the evolutionary community believe, repeated interactions cannot explain the evolution of cooperation. So, that's a first important finding. Okay, so according to the team's model, the repeated interactions theory is out. And when simulating the dynamics of group competition, the model finds that this also fails to lead to cooperation. It flies in the face of two very prominent theories for how cooperation can evolve. And so we are stuck, so, so to speak. And then we had the idea that maybe. 
if the two mechanisms, repeated interactions and group competitions, can work together, maybe that leads to a different result. And to our surprise, we found out these two mechanisms of cooperation, when simultaneously active, can explain human cooperation over a wide range of conditions. What the group competitions do is they counteract the individual's incentives to cheat a little bit. So the model suggests that cooperation didn't evolve because of repeated interactions or group competition. It evolved because of repeated interactions and group competition. And to test this theory, the team investigated what the model predicts should happen when real people play this game. Do they play the game in the way you'd expect if cooperation did indeed arise thanks to both group competition and repeated interactions? The question can't be answered so easily by getting people in, say, Zurich to play the game, since there are so many rules and regulations enforcing cooperation in Switzerland. Instead, the study asked people in the western highlands of Papua New Guinea. And therefore, we get much more at evolved behavioral tendencies when we do experiments in Papua New Guinea compared to Switzerland or the US. But asking people who aren't so well-connected to state or scientific institutions to take part in a study can be somewhat fraught. And to avoid exploitation, it's vital that everyone understands what they're agreeing to and why. But the team had someone on hand who was well-positioned to set up the collaboration. Helen Bernhardt, who is one of our co-authors, grew up in Papua New Guinea. She had intimate knowledge of the local customs and norms in these societies. And that helped us greatly to conduct these experiments because you have to be sensitive to the local customs and local norms. You have to acquire the trust of the people. And Helen was the ideal person to do that. The team wanted to see if these participants would back up the predictions their model had made of human cooperation. Namely, that if two players see themselves as being in the same group, they'll help each other more and more over time. And if players see themselves as being in different groups, they'll gradually help each other less. So they played out the same game again with the real participants to see if the model's predictions held up. These two predictions could be tested in our experiment in Papua New Guinea and they both turned out to be true. And so the study, through its model and its work with participants in Papua New Guinea, suggests that cooperation may have evolved not just because humans interact repeatedly with each other and not just because humans evolved in competing groups, but thanks to both of these forces. For Sarah, this result is profound, not just because it takes us closer to understanding the evolution of cooperation, but because it helps highlight just how many questions there still are to answer to explain why we humans help each other out. I think one of the most important results in this paper is to really shake people out of this status quo. So I don't think this is case closed. It's more that this is case opened. That was Sarah Matthew from Arizona State University in the US. You also heard from Ernst Fair from the University of Zurich in Switzerland. For more on that story, check out the show notes for some links. Coming up, a method to make disks the go-to data storage system of tomorrow. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. 
divers have helped to uncover the remnants of a one-kilometer-long Stone Age wall submerged in the Baltic Sea off the coast of Germany. Researchers used camera images, sediment cores, and sonar data to characterize a string of boulders located 21 meters down and around 10 kilometers from the shore. The team counted over 1,500 rocks in a formation that stretches 971 meters. Most of the rocks weigh less than 100 kilograms and so could be moved into position by small groups of people. Analysis suggests that the structure ran along the shoreline of a former lake or bog. It was most likely built by hunter-gatherers over 10,000 years ago, possibly as a tool to guide reindeer and other large animals during hunts, before becoming submerged around 8,500 years ago as the sea level rose. Take a deeper dive into that research in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Young apes get a kick out of teasing each other and joking around when they're relaxed, just like humans do. Researchers recorded videos of five great ape species, orangutans, chimpanzees, bonobos, and western and eastern gorillas as they played in zoos in the US and Germany. They noted the primates' interactions, including how often they tried to provoke a response from one another rather than simply playing together. Like cheeky siblings, the apes would poke their targets repeatedly, dangle objects in their faces, pull their hair, or stare at them until they responded. All five species seemed to tease each other in similar ways and were most likely to play in this way when relaxed. The researchers say that this kind of play probably evolved at least 13 million years ago before humans' ancestors separated from those of these ape species. If you've gone ape for this research, read it in full in Proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences. Could the humble disk be the future of data storage? Well, a new paper from Nature might make that a step closer to reality as the team behind it have made the storage capacity of such disks millions of times greater than those currently available. I feel so excited. And uh, over the 10 years, we have done a lot and lots of work for that particular goal. This is Min Gu, one of the authors of the new paper. Now, the reason that this has been a particular goal is that we, as a society, are producing more data than ever and we need places to store it. Typically, that's currently achieved by hard disks, like you have in your computer, but they may not be up to the task forever. There are some limitations. The hard disk drive, there are limited capacity. The second issue is regarding the hard disk drive is the lifetime. So typically, the hard disk drive, the lifetime is three to five years, or five to ten years. Now, Optical discs, your DVDs, Blu-rays, CDs and the like, can last up to 50 years under the right conditions. And they also use less energy than hard disks, potentially making them a greener alternative for long-term, large-scale data storage and retrieval. But for capacity, well, they are also limited there. The biggest kind of disk you can typically buy tops out at around 100 gigabytes of storage. 
To put that in some nerdy context for you, that's not quite enough for one of the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings in 4K Ultra HD quality. Whereas hard drives can be up to 100 terabytes, a thousand times more, and a lot more room to store the adventures of Frodo and the gang. Optical discs have been limited by how much information you can write on them, which is in turn limited by the resolution of the lasers that do the writing. There is a physics law, it's called a diffraction limit. So the size of the laser spot on the disc is limited to half of the wavelength, the wavelength of the laser beam we used. So in other words, the smallest bit size on the Blu-ray is about 200 nanometers. That is the limitation. When you write data or bits onto a disk, you write it in dots. So the more focused, fine-tuned the laser, the smaller the dots can be, allowing you to pack more of them, and therefore more data, onto a disk. To overcome the limitation of how focused lasers can be, Min had a plan. Instead of using one laser to write on the disk, how about two? The wavelength of the second laser beam or the color of the second laser beam is slightly different from the first one. So in that case, we also make the second laser beam into a donut shape. So if we imagine that the one laser beam is a bright spot in the center, the second laser beam is a ring structure. So then we use the second laser beam to erase the ring of the first laser beam. You can imagine this process a bit like this. If you shine a torch, a flashlight, on the wall, you will have a bright spot at the centre and a diffuse halo of light around it. But if you block this halo, you'll be left with just a bright spot. Fundamentally, the same thing is happening here. The team used a second laser to erase the diffuse ring created by the first, leaving just a single focused laser spot. This allowed Min and the team to get around that diffraction limit and be able to write more information onto a disk. Now this laser cancelling laser technique has been around for a while. It's been used for etching tiny details onto things like computer chips. In fact, Min himself proposed its usage for data storage 10 years ago. But the key to getting it to work has been finding the right material. In this paper, Min and the team have created a thin film that could be coated on plastic discs and has the right chemical composition to allow the two lasers to write onto it effectively. We tried many materials, but we never reached as good as results like detailed in this paper. Their method was able to write way more dots onto a disc than any other optical disc before. In the end, they were able to achieve petabits of storage on a disc the same size as a regular DVD, a petabit being a thousand times as big as a terabit, much bigger than currently available hard drives, which would allow you to store a whole lot of the Lord of the Rings in the highest quality. By enabling massive amounts of data to be stored on a single optical disc, Min's method could help reduce the space and energy requirements of the massive data centres that used to store the increasing amount of data we create as a society. So if you think about the petabyte data storage currently, if you use a hard disk drive, then basically you need a very large space to store, let's say, thousands of disks, stack them together. 
and a lot of the cooling process because this disc produces heat. So air conditioning costs 30% of the energy consumption of the other center. Now you can actually use one disc to store equivalent amount of information. This is still some way off though. At the moment, the process of writing and reading the discs is pretty slow. And whilst the storage of the discs could be energy saving, this writing process is quite energy intensive. The energy used is similar to that to write a normal optical disc, but with a million times as much data, so a lot more energy overall. At the moment as well, Min and the team use a specialist microscope to read information off the disc, so we'd also have to change our devices in order to read them properly. The DVD player you have gathering dust in the attic won't be up to snuff here. But if these problems are overcome, maybe discs will make a comeback. In this podcast piece, you heard from Min Gu from the University of Shanghai in China. For more on the future of discs, check out the show notes for a link to the paper. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we talk about some of the stories that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. And Nick, I think I'll go first this week. And I've got a story from Ars Technica, and it involves a fossil that has really had scientists stumped for almost 100 years because, well, they couldn't really figure out what it was. And now researchers have taken a fresh look at it using, you know, cutting-edge techniques, and they figured out what it is. Now, according to their research, which they've published in the journal Paleontology, it is a fake. Oh, so the end of that particular drum roll is it wasn't a fossil after all at all. What was it then? Okay, well, we're going to go back in time here to begin with. (laughs) So we're going back to 1931, the Italian Alps, where this fossil was discovered. Okay, now it's a small creature, uh, lizard-like, maybe sort of 20 centimetres long, estimated to date back to about 280 million years ago. And when it was described in 1959, it was given the name Tridentinosaurus antiquus. Now, apologies to any Latin speakers out there if I've got that wrong. (laughs) Now, it's quite unusual. Now, I'm going to show you a picture, Nick, so you can see it, and we'll put a link in the show notes so the listeners can see it as well. And it's a strange-looking thing. It looks a bit like a silhouette. Yeah, it looks kind of like a frog's being run over or something like that. It looks very odd. Yeah, so it has got all its limbs there. It's got a tail as well. And for the longest time, this kind of silhouette was thought to be preserved skin. Okay, now this is very, very rare indeed. I discussed that with Sharmini a few weeks ago on the podcast about how difficult it is to find preserved skin in any sort of fossil. You have to have just the right conditions. And it was posited that this fossil is preserved the way that it is because maybe it was caught in kind of a volcano blast or something like that, which seared, which charred the outside layers of its skin instantly. Okay. And to lend weight to this, there are also some plants found in the same region which were preserved in a similar way. Okay. And so this is quite exciting for a lot of people in terms of, you know, figuring out the evolution of lizards and where it sat on the tree of life and what have you. And it's been discussed for years. You know, researchers have been trying to place it on said tree. But it turns out that all of those efforts might be for naught. (laughs) That's very disappointing for all those people who've worked very hard for a long time. I guess, what was it then if it wasn't a fossil? Well, this is where some detective work comes in then. So researchers, you know, wanted to try and answer these questions about what was this animal? Where did it fit on the tree of life? So they took another look at it using cutting edge science techniques, which weren't available previously. And so... They did a bunch of things. In one instance, they shined some ultraviolet light 
on it. And this fossil kind of fluoresced yellow. But the plants found nearby, they didn't fluoresce, which is kind of an interesting red flag. Mm. And it turns out, actually, that this might not have been too unusual because a lot of old fossils had a layer of varnish put on them to preserve them, okay, which isn't really done very much now. But varnish kind of does fluoresce, okay? So that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But the researchers wanted to peer beneath this veneer to try and look at the actual silhouette to see, you know, was this skin? What was it? What could it tell them about the animal? And they did a bunch of sort of chemical techniques and they realised that the skin is actually black paint. <laughs> You're joking. Nope. Specifically a type of paint made from animal bones called bone black paint with some irony. So <laughs> so was this some sort of prank then or was this just an accident and it happened to look like a fossil and people got a bit confused by it? Well, that's a great question. And I think what's actually going on here historically isn't clear. Now, the researcher's conclusion is that someone had just carved kind of a lizard shape in the rock and then filled it in with black paint. And they've used a bunch of different methods to characterise this. Now, as for who did it, they suggest that this must have happened before 1959 when the species was formally kind of described. But as to who and when, I mean, that's one for somebody else on some sort of true crime podcast to try and figure out. (laughs) Well, I guess, you know, finding out that this fossil isn't a fossil is disappointing for some but presumably there's more science to be done well there's a lot to still learn about this fossil and i think what's interesting is that some of it actually does seem to be real fossil like there's Mm. a couple of leg bones at the back of the fossil that do appear to be fossilized bones and the researchers say that they found a few little things that look like tiny scales on the back of this animal so there is an identification to be had. It's going to be really, really tough because these bones aren't very well preserved. You know, not necessarily the end of the story for Tridentinosaurus antiquus, okay? But I think what the researchers are saying is stop using this for any sort of phylogenetic analysis because it isn't what it was purported to be. And it speaks to kind of a broader problem. There are fossils that are fakes and it comes up now and again, right? So I think the researchers suggest that when fossils are described, there needs to be maybe really, really good reporting of how it was done, of of what methods were used to characterize it to try and avoid situations like this in the future well maybe some lessons there then for future paleontologists who come across fossils like this thanks ben for my story this week i've been reading about something that may sound a little bit strange as well it's about meat rice meat rice okay i've got so many questions is this rice made of meat is it meat made of rice is it just a dish containing meat and rice i mean nick please define what meat rice is off the bat (laughs) so kind of yes and no and yes to those questions so this is a kind of hybrid food so this is where researchers have grown muscle cells and fat cells on rice so they've used rice as a scaffold in order to grow basically meat and so you've ended up with this sort of strange and listeners be sure to check out the link to this like this strange sort of pink looking rice which is a combination of meat and rice and this is reported in nature and why have they done this (laughs) well that's a very good question and there are a lot of efforts around the world to try and make lab grown meat we've talked about them before on the podcast but these have some problems if you're trying to make the conventional things that people try and go for like steaks or burgers they're quite hard to form into the right shape because you just have like a mass of cells that doesn't necessarily grow in the way that you would expect if you wanted to have a meat-like product. 
So that's part of it. Also, people aren't necessarily familiar with lab-grown meat and stuff. They may not be interested in it. They may not know what to do with it. They may not know how to cook it. So these researchers were trying to address those problems by making a product that people are familiar with and that they could add a bit of meat to to increase its nutritional quality. And thus we get meat rice. When I think about meat protein, I guess it needs kind of a blood supply and so forth to grow. But are these just small clumps of cells that are attached to the rice grain? What are we talking about here? Yeah, essentially it's that. It's like a film of cells that has grown onto the rice. So what happens when you're trying to do this is you get your rice, you lay on it a little bit of fish gelatin, and a commonly used food additive, which helps the sort of cells stick onto it. And then you bathe the combination of cells and rice in growth media, and then the cells just sort of form this layer on top of the rice. And you end up with this, as I say, sort of pinky rice looking thing so it's not just a rice plant that grows and it has the meat on the outside of the rice the meat is added separately by dunking the rice into it yeah basically that so it's quite different from regular rice apparently it tastes a bit nuttier and it was a bit harder but it does increase the sort of protein content and the fat content Not by very much, though, it has to be said. So this was around 0.01 grams more fat and 0.31 grams more protein. So in the future, the researchers are interested in trying to raise those numbers up. But nonetheless, this could be an easy way to increase nutritional quality of rice. And also growing it in this way is much cheaper than other alternatives. Like if you Well, if you grow just normal beef, that costs quite a lot and also has environmental cost as well. And compared to other lab-grown things, this could be a cheaper way as well because you're just using the rice as a scaffold rather than trying to make a whole mass of lab-grown meat. I don't know if this is addressed in the article, but does it talk about how you need to cook it? Because I can imagine if you cook the rice, then you'd overcook the meat. But if you cook the meat so it's right, then you'd undercook the rice. Is that something that's been addressed? Yeah, exactly. So this is actually one of the things that they wanted to make easier for people, like how to use this in their cooking. And you cook it just like normal rice. So it goes a little bit yellow in places, but otherwise you just cook it just as you would normal rice. I mean, I guess it's quite an involved process to make this, which suggests that We're not going to see it on supermarket shelves or supermarket fridges, I'm not sure, anytime soon. No, we're probably not. Like, there is still work to be done with this. And also, lab-grown meat has not been approved for sale in most countries. Only the US and Singapore have approved the sale of it. And so it seems that lab-grown meat still has a way to go in terms of regulation as well. But the researchers behind this were quite excited. And one researcher who wasn't involved as well says, the idea seems really cool. You can just have one rice and take care of everything in terms of sort of nutritional needs. Well, that is a neat one and I think it's starting to make me a little bit hungry so let's call the briefing chat there for the time being before my stomach starts to rumble and listeners for more on both of those stories head over to the show notes where you can find links to them and a link on where you can sign up to the briefing to get even more stories like them delivered directly to your inbox that's all for now but check your podcast feed later this week there'll be an extra podcast of whale-like proportions for now though you can keep in touch with us on x we're at nature podcast or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com i'm nick petrichow and i'm benjamin thompson see you next time Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. 
From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store, Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.